Hi, I'm Lars-Erik Lundin and you are listening to a podcast from the Royal Swedish Academy of War Sciences, ahead of Sweden's accession to NATO and as current rotating presidency of the European Union. This podcast focuses on an issue brief put out by the Atlantic Council and authored by Anna Wislander, Erik Adamson and Jesper Lechto, with the title How Allied Sweden and Finland Can Secure Northern Europe. The brief was put out on January 6th this year, so it's very topical. Anna has kindly offered to introduce the brief to my colleague in the Academy, Michael Sardin, and myself. She's eminently well-placed to discuss the matter as Director for Northern Europe of the Atlantic Council and as a member of our Academy, as a Secretary-General of the Swedish Defence Association and Chairman of the Board of the Institute for Security and Development Policy in Stockholm. The brief is an important contribution to the current debate on how Sweden should uh, fit into NATO and should benefit from its present role in the EU in order to improve security in Northern Europe. In order to say something meaningful about this, one needs to know quite a lot about the structure set up and the processes developing within this framework. At the same time, it's clear that Russia's war against Ukraine and other important challenges, including lessons learned, have further concretized the challenges facing Sweden as and a Swedish defense. The issue brief is a developed version of an earlier paper put out in 2019 by Wislander and another colleague, focusing on a comprehensive approach for NATO in the Northern European context. As will be obvious, the ambitious title has another meaning than one might think. Sweden and Finland are of course not able by themselves to secure Northern Europe, but their actions will set stage for the necessary response on the part of NATO, the European Union and the Member States in order to make security by deterrence through denial a continued reality in the North. Anna, and welcome back to this uh, small podcast, which is uh, the second. Uh, but I was a bit surprised because it's almost two years ago. Time flies and one or two things have happened since we uh, we spoke last. And, uh, and, and it's not fun to remember or, or remind our listeners and viewers about this evolution, which makes security policy in our region a much more traumatic issue than it was perhaps tw two years ago when most people were taken, uh, their attention was taken by the pandemic in particular, and it made it difficult for many people to focus. And I would even argue, learn something about uh, NATO. So you did at that time produce a quite a, an important piece of work on what you call a comprehensive approach to, to uh, how you, see the Nordic region and NATO and Sweden in that context. Uh, you wanted to see a comprehensive, uh, uh, make a comprehensive analysis of both our transatlantic uh, relations and, and of course how Europe fits in, in, uh, in with this. We were not yet in NATO, uh, in, in the NATO accession process at that time, now we are. And now you have updated this brief together with another, a couple of other colleagues. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's a good learning period for us now. Uh, we still have a few months, possibly uh, longer, we don't know, until we are actually members of NATO. But it's high time for people to become more concrete in their uh, analysis and, and know more about the details uh, of uh, what, what's coming up. Um, there is this word alphabet soup, which I have uh, uh, encountered many times when I have been involved in multilateral and Mikael as well, you know, as a representative of Sweden or the EU in international relations. And may, many people were very tired when they hear about all these acronyms uh, uh, and uh, they wonder, uh, not, and this is not least the problem for the military. Uh, how are, are we going to have time to go to all these meetings of all these different configurations and initiatives, bilateral, multilateral? So you make an attempt in your study to 
put things into perspective to sort of order up, make, create some sort of order here. And maybe you want to say something initially about your intentions and your hopes when it comes to this new study. Maybe I can add before you do, Anna, also that uh, yeah, with alphabet soup, uh, uh, is referring, of course, to all the structures, all the processes that were created in our region uh, on the basis of the perceptions and possibilities perceived at that time. Now we're on post February 24, and we've had these uh, new uh, basic documents. So the question is uh, that I would uh, uh, sort of tease you with now is, uh, are things moving so fast that even the doctrine document, documents that we now have tend to be or risk to be become obsolete as the uh, re realities uh, rush onwards? So let me add this uh, as a basic question for you. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for inviting me back to, to this podcast. I'm delighted to be here and, and to be able to explore a bit around uh, the report that we just launched, or the issue brief. Um, and just to say first that I think when it comes to the alphabet soup, as uh, Sweden and Finland are on our way to join NATO, um, there will be simplifications, I think, in what we need to um, focus on. And uh, what I what we wanted to achieve with this report is to have a look from the NATO perspective on Northern Europe uh, at this point. Um, because of Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, the whole security situation is uh, the worst that we have experienced, I would argue, since the Second World War. And NATO is, of course, adjusting accordingly. One response uh, to the situation is, is Sweden and, and Finland's uh, wish to join NATO. And when we merge uh, both where uh, NATO is heading and what Sweden and Finland can contribute with, I believe that we have an opportunity here. And that's, that's one of the main messages of this report, the suggestion to create a deterrence by denial bubble uh, in Northern Europe. And by that, we not only propose a, a range of military uh, measures that we can dig into, but we underline, as, as, as you, you both said, that this needs to be a comprehensive approach in that military uh, measures must be underpinned by strong resilience and robustness measures across the borders in Northern Europe. And the third dimension, uh, linking back to the alphabet soup, is to really try and have a stronger uh, political agenda setting that is to the benefit of Northern Europe and to use these various forms that we have in a more targeted way uh, a more forward-leaning way. And we there in this combination, we believe that uh, Northern Europe can position uh, itself as a contribution to transatlantic burden sharing. And uh, we perhaps boldly also suggest that from a position of strength in the future, when we have a post-war situation of some kind uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, such a position of strength can contribute to a new period, perhaps, of detente measures, because you need to be stronger before you can start uh, giving in uh, to such, um, such negotiations also, which we need, of course, in the larger picture. So this is a range of steps that we think are interlinked, and we want to see and, and um, illuminate uh, how this could work together. In view of developments having occurred in Ukraine and around the Ukraine war and prospects before the spring and the possible Russian offensive, etc., etc., is there a risk or is there any reason to ask whether this description of U.S. policy, which is such a key to everything here, has become obsolete in any way or does it still hold? Uh, as an analysis and a, and a reason why you're proposing what you're proposing. Yes, I think what's important here is to to look at it both from a short-term perspective and a longer-term perspective, as, as you're indicating as well. Um, if you look at both uh, US and then NATO policy when it comes to Russia, 
uh, I think the threat assessment is the same in the short term perspective. Uh, and there we have a U.S. engagement and so on. But where uh, it differs a bit, because uh, with NATO, it is a regional organization uh, with uh, you know, a majority of European allies, actually, even though the U.S. Uh, leads, leads the alliance, you have a discrepancy when it comes to the assessment of China. And that is where it becomes complicated. Uh, and the U.S., I think perhaps sometimes we are not daydreaming, but there is a sense of a little bit of wishful thinking, I th believe, from the European side of view, that you know the US would drop its, its uh, um, what we from a European side sometimes believe are almost an obsession with China, um, and perhaps come to, to their senses and, and say that, you know, you can, you can balance, you could do a little bit of cooperation, a little bit of, of competition. Um, our understanding, uh, and and the U.S. just released a range of, of strategies: the national security strategy, the, the national defense strategy, the, national, the nuclear review, and so on. Is that this? This is not the case. The, China is the coming decade. That's that's the big competition and the big battle. And the and when it comes to Russia and for uh, countries such as Sweden, Finland, and all of us who are. We can never escape from our geographic position. We will always have to deal with Russia, as we also point out here. Uh, our, our, our big question is, how do we keep the UN's engagement in the best way? So we can, you know, call 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 the wolf is coming, call the wolf is coming. And we, we suggest that probably that's not good enough. Uh, we should make a substantial contribution to burden sharing and kind of, you know, uh, acknowledge that China uh, will be uh, demanding for the US and it will not only be conventionally demanding, it will be commanding from a nuclear perspective as well. Uh, the assessment is that in 2030, you know, the US has to face two uh, major strategic adversaries also when it comes to nuclear weapons as China is, is building its nuclear arsenal so quickly and expanding it. Mm. So, so, so I think believe that, and also if you look at NATO, I think we touch upon it a bit. Uh, you know, China has entered the agenda of NATO not in a military sense because there is no military planning that involves China and, and capability development within NATO is not focused on on meeting any kind of you know dealing with China in any way. But so far, so far, so far, uh, exactly. You know, some would add so far. And, and a lot of the discussions in, in NATO on the political side uh, are about China, perhaps not as focused as that could be, but still, you know, and, and when I uh, was at NATO headquarters in September interviewing, someone told me that, well, Sweden and Finland used to be closest partners, and now you are soon allies, uh, and our next closest partners, I believe, you know, that's China, that's uh, Japan and Australia. Mm. That's Japan and Australia. So that's that's the mental shift that we have to to face. And therefore, I think we need to be constructive and we need to take our own security seriously uh, and and understand how this will might evolve and and also be explicit towards the U.S. and Washington. What what can our contribution actually be? And who are we in this case then? This, this is, I think, Sweden. This is these are perhaps the European allies. Uh, I would argue, yes, <clears throat> within the transatlantic framework, because that's how we have to anchor it now. Yeah. Um, and you still have a northern North European actor perspective, also. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I do. I do because the 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 forefront of the strategic competition we it's in Northern Europe to a large extent now. Uh, I mean, if you compare to the Cold War, we had a, we had the buffered zone in a way, and and, and now it's it's a direct confrontation. You, the, you know, the line between being an ally and a non-ally, and even the the biggest adversary you have, that's a direct line up here. Yeah. Uh, that's a big difference, and that's also because <clears throat> that's what we have heard from the the Baltic states and Poland during the Ukraine war. Uh, pushing for a change of NATO from a deterrence by punishment um, strategy, which was adopted uh, in 2014, or uh, they say, you know, well, what will there be to reconquer? <laughs> Look at how mm. Russia is conducting its warfare in Ukraine. 
they destroy and then there's nothing left and and the, we you know they roll over so we need to strengthen that denial dimension and that's also what nato has decided to do that's that's the strategy ahead and that is what sweden and finland will enter into soon and i think that's how we can make a collective contribution up here in, in northern europe and i i uh, i see this area one of the comprehensive approaches uh, not only uh, connecting the military with the political side but geographically also we have been uh, advocating for and i think that's that's how most people see it now that the baltic sea and the arctic and also the north atlantic uh, are interconnected areas from a military strategic point of view and we need to see it like that and that, but i think a lot of people acknowledge it now but you can still hear no, it's not about the Baltic states. It's about the Nordkalot or the Arctic, you know, mm. or you have to understand it's about Gothenburg and the North and the North Atlantic. And we say, no, not, yeah. not, no, please don't fragment it. Please see how it's connected. And of course, there are always, you know, there's not a indefinite amount of resources and you have to prioritize and so on. But from a military planning point of view, while you are doing those prioritizations and planning procedures, you need to see how those areas are interconnected and how you can best best uh, work to 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 build that kind of deterrence levels that we need. Uh, I just wanted to add when I asked, so who are we? I, I of course refer to what you have answered now and the the question, the various circles that we have tried to portray in our region and and the need to somehow have a, a simpler but also more sort of strategically valid configura configuration. And, and that leads me to also ask you if you if, if think, as you, I think you write in your paper uh, about the North, Northern Europe that consists also of not only the Nordic countries and the Baltics, but also Germany and Poland. Uh, not the Netherlands any longer, apparently. You had this North, North European configuration apropos whatever may be a little bit obsolete but uh, are you seeing it as a problematic thing or uh, uh, not to to con conceive of a, 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 a rearming Poland and a hesitant Germany but on the verge of uh, doing more in, in defense is that unproblematic in order to to mobilize this grouping of North European countries that would share share the bubble so to speak uh, or, or is it? Am I am I over problematizing when I ask even ask this? Oh, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, we need to. This this will be a bit breaking new grounds, I think, because this format, um, even though you have formats such as the Northern Group, you don't really have it in in a in a very strong way. But the way we have been analyzing it and 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 looking at it. I think, uh, I mean, Poland is really a coming power. They invest a lot uh, in in military resources, and now they are also on on the you know on the on the border towards uh, Ukraine. And you can notice in uh, various forums, also within the EU, that Poland is more you know it's a, a little bit of a go-to country actually uh, for quite a few countries, and we are not perhaps used to see it like that but i think we need to from time to time we have uh, developed a lot of cooperation with poland but we need to take that one step further and and perhaps include the the, the poland more than we have done uh, in the past i think there is preference and we feel very comfortable working with the nordic countries for instance and a bit of a relief that now that we all are becoming NATO members, you know, we can really have a, a Nordic union. Uh, but that is not, <laughs> I mean, that is not what we're entering. We are entering NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think also if you ask uh, both the Norwegians and the Danes, there are there are limits still to how, you know, or they, they would say, well, we should not create a, a NATO within NATO in that sense. You know, Nordic cooperation is fine. We have suggestions uh, along the, the, the uh, within the Nordic circle as well, and for instance, on on air dominance. But uh, but still, uh, it's not the solution for everything. And Germany is of course also a big challenge going through its Zeitenwende, <laughs> just as Sweden and Finland are perhaps going through Zeitenwende. 
um, and there are huge discussions on, on, you know, is Germany at all capable of leading? And, and I think a lot of ongoing criticism on, on, on Germany in, in various ways. But still, I mean, you cannot dismiss. I still think there is a big... Uh, Germany is a, a, a Baltic Sea nation. It's, it's um, a big European ally. It's the fourth biggest economy in the world. Um, it's embedded within NATO in, in all its defense and security uh, efforts. And therefore, I mean, we need to work constructively with Germany and engage Germany more in, in northern uh, issues. And that's a bit of a learning process, actually, because Germany, um, in, to my understanding and the discussions I have in Berlin, it's, it's pretty new for, for Germany to look north. They have just been a continental power. But they are um, enormously welcoming to our entrance into yeah, NATO. Yeah. Yes, they are, and I think this this is also an opportunity. And now they have a, a very. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a big defense budget there. So let's work together. That's what I'm saying. Both Poland and Germany are expanding. So let's find the best solutions. Let's not miss this opportunity to connect the region in in the strongest possible way. I mean, the UK. You have. Uh, already engaged and you have the Joint Expeditionary Force, um, which we haven't really expanded upon in the in the oh. issue brief, because uh, we believe that uh, you, you can do that, of course, but you have to draw the line somewhere. And there has been a lot of, of development within the GEF, and that has been, I mean, it's a strong reassurance measures, measure uh, for Sweden and Finland uh, during the accession process, for instance. Uh, you have the Netherlands taking part in the GEF. So, of course, there are dots and we're not like completely excluding the Netherlands. But the, if you combine both the military with the robustness, the resilience and the political side, I think the Netherlands falls a little bit more too much to the continental side um, to be part of, of, of what we see as, as the core up here in the north. Will the GEF survive the full entrance into NATO of Sweden and Finland, you think? Or is it a way to keep uh, the UK uh, on board in a transatlantic um, pro-European sense? Well, I, you know, that's an it's an interesting question. And I, uh, perhaps I think it's a bit of an open question. I think, yes, I think Jeff will survive because, I mean, politely, the, the UK has, uh, has uh, anchored it in NATO as a framework nation concept. Uh, they did that already in, in 2014. Although it's mostly a, a British tool, I think, to for for regional uh, power projection, um, it has been, I think, interestingly developed as a tool for the below Article Five kind of scenario. If we if we talk about this, um, the, the hybrid environment that we are working in or and and, and daily have to 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 deal with. Uh, the Jeff is, is supposed to be agile and to send signals and to be, you know, part of of very early kind of deterrence measures. Um, I think that's wise. You could probably build even more on it. But the problem with the Jeff is that it does not include the Germans nor the Poles, actually. Uh, so it has some limitations as well. Where you, yeah. if you go or, or again to the Germans, they would ask questions, you know, on on this and how it's supposed to to be developed. And, and they have their proposal for a for a format also. Yeah. Exactly. So so this is not again. I don't think the Jeff is is the solution to everything. As it looks, it it's a pretty. It's a it's a it's a valuable contribution to to security here. Uh, in the region, and and uh, I think the the Brits will continue to put energy into that format, uh, but we need to do other things as well. Yeah, can I can I sort of recap a little bit here because I think you started off in a more in a global uh, perspective, and uh, you noted that obviously there have been some changes when it comes to China, but fundamentally China remains. Uh, 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 something that we have to always keep in mind and then when you come closer to the alliance and it's as a regional organization and you mentioned the european union i mean there we have a we have i, I assume that you you find it easier today in your brief to draw attention to the potential um 
of synergies between the EU and NATO than you did probably two years ago when the EU was still very much a sort of a hypothetical actor in security policy. There we have a big difference, I suppose, that would that would uh, give your idea of a comprehensive approach across the board, including resilience, much more substance than we, we could have uh, seen or could have recognized just two years two years ago. And then on the third level, when you go down inside Europe, I think uh, Michael's question about Poland and Germany is, so is sort of, as, as we say in Swedish, or in German, aha erlebnis. Because when we have been working with the project inside the Academy about the future of Europe, many colleagues have had found it difficult to include Germany and Poland uh, in a serious way into our defense planning perspectives, noting, you know, that, oh, Germany doesn't really try uh, at the time, and also bulking the Visegrad countries together in a way, which today seems a little bit more theoretical since the threat perceptions are so different between the the different Visegrad countries. And we, when we talk to Hungarian and other friends, of course, they have a quite different outlook than than what you see now in a high alert uh, and extremely uh, mobilized uh, Polish uh, context. And you so, still have France. You still have to add France also to the. Yes, yes, and and uh, so we have a sort of a. Uh, the question is, um, one would not have been able a couple of years ago when you wrote this, uh, uh, the previous version of the brief, to see the the very important distinction, I think, between uh, the degree of concern about the security situation between, uh, on the one hand, we have an east-west uh, dimension inside Europe, there where obviously countries a little bit further away from Ukraine are less worried about the situation, or more, con and then you have the north-south, and when some countries towards the south are more concerned about what, it, what happens in the south and in Africa and so on. But we clearly can say that Germany and Poland now is uh, are as countries very close uh, to our thinking in in terms of the dramatic nature of the security threats. And on top of all of this, what you have also seen, I assume that when you write this new brief, that it's much easier to say that deterrence is not just nuclear. Deterrence is uh, uh, an ability to show that we are willing to and ready to fight to, to defend our freedom and our sovereignty uh, with conventional means. And that what, what was seemed to be a very theoretical discussion uh, because everyone was thinking of, well, if there is war in Europe, there will be a nuclear war. No, it, not necessarily. Uh, and, uh, and this is what makes your analysis now such so much more pertinent, it seems to me, <laughs> than it would have been you know, in just two or three years ago when people were thinking in much more abstract terms, what would a war in Europe, what could it be? Because mm. now we have the lessons learned from Ukraine. Yeah. To add. Exactly. I think that's, that's uh, when, when it comes to our second pillar there on, on uh, robustness and resilience, uh, EU-NATO cooperation, this, uh, this war has been such an eye-opener, I think, in, in, in many ways. Um, both when it comes to, of course, the Ukrainian will to fight and the will to resist and the will to really bounce back in a resilient way. I mean, just look at how their uh, energy infrastructure is, is hit time by time by time they repair it. And it's it's really one of their most important uh, strategic communication messages is that, you know, we will not bend down on this Um the energy security weapon um, that Russia has been pulling for a long time. Now we see it and now we finally, we in, as in the EU finally acted on it. Um, so I think this is, this is in a way simpler, as you say, <laughs> it's it, because it affects each one of us can make a difference here. Um, not, you know, not only preparations, but mentally as well, and understanding that that um, this is a human human factor in it. Uh, but on the institutional side, I think it has also the war has also been an eye opener. Um, in a way, uh, reality killed the cat in that 
the EU, to my mind, has has been much more realistic in how it's uh, cooperating with NATO since the war started. Um, the proposals and, and the developments that we see are much more uh, realistic in a way. What can the e- what are the ben- what are the strengths of the EU? Uh, well, its budget, uh, its control of legislation, uh, infrastructure, the most civilian parts. Uh, while it's so obvious that NATO uh, is the one that will have to deal with um, uh, collective defense and including the nuclear deterrent factor. I mean, there is no uh, interest at all within the EU to, to, you mentioned France. France has put the French uh, nuclear umbrella on at, on the table in the EU. I mean, all those ideas, uh, I haven't heard anything of, of, of that during this year. It's It's been really quite quite a realistic discussion. Um, so in that sense, I think uh, what we've seen at procurement is another issue that the EU is dealing with in a, you know innovation, dual use, um, uh, defense and, and uh, technology. Um, still, uh, still, it's not a lot of money either in the, in the EU actually that it puts out as stimulus uh, to get this. So I think, um the whole idea just strategic autonomy i was asked what what you know is this still alive well i guess it's not completely dead it will i'm sure it will pop up at some point again as a concept but it's much more realistic now and we we believe there is uh, as we also propose on 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 uh, the resilience part you know take a flagship uh, project such as military mobility which was, uh, I think that's it's it's a very interesting uh, example because it has to do with how quickly you can move troops uh, from the western part uh, of of uh, NATO uh, and the EU uh, to the eastern flank and also up north or, or down to the south, for instance, because now the Black Sea is also uh, part of this and and, and the Med. Um, and there you need the EU for a lot of things here, both both building roads, the railways, bridges, standards, uh, logistic, uh, transport centers, uh, being able to, to transfer ammunition, because we're not perhaps talking about a wartime situation, we're talking about deterrence in a peacetime uh, legislative situation. So all <clears throat> this needs to work. Yes, if I may add on that one, uh, personally, I, I see the EU as a catalyst uh, mm. that it enables, enables. Not, least the, not least the private sector to do its work, uh, regulates the system, uh, provides a level playing field for the private sector to, to be able to, to move on certain innovations uh, um, standard on the basis of uh, established standards and there is very important to say that already 20 years ago there was uh, the beginning of the work of harmonizing NATO and EU standards very much built upon NATO terminology and NATO so so I'm really hopeful there that um, uh, what we will see is that it creates much more out of limited money actually uh, relatively limited money um, through the um, the EU and here we are talking about the community work. I mean, not not second pillar, not the intergovernmental part of the EU. We are talking about mobilizing uh, a community, uh, and it's uh, in that sense good that we have a Commission president, I suppose, that uh, who has a background as a defense minister herself. So, been here on uh, on uh, and. Uh... Develop some thoughts concerning what you said about the strategic autonomy. In your paper, you, uh, as we said before, you are describing a situation where uh, there is a demand from the U.S. for greater complementarity and greater participation in order to allow for more uh, for fuller cooperation and, and complementarity, uh, and hence your proposals concerning Northern Europe. Uh, I see this. Uh, I see similar signs of, uh, uh, you said Macron has not uh, spoken so much now about uh, uh, autonomy in terms of something instead of or something yes, to replace something. Uh, and I think that he too realizes, uh, and take take for example, uh, what Kissinger has been re- saying only recently about uh, his conviction now that uh, in some cases, and we are in such a situation now, 
where deterrence and and um, ma making a f sort of a full taking a stand and not seeking balancing games uh, in world politics. And I think that uh, Macron similarly is uh, talking now uh, or thinking now along the lines of of complementarity, not seeing uh, not seeing. Um, uh, strategic autonomy as an alternative or at the expense of NATO, but rather seeing that clearly NATO is now the main actor in, in terms of hard security. It has to be like that as a necessity as a result of both Ukraine and Russia and China. Uh, yes, I, you know, I agree. I think the French, uh, the French were already before even the Russian uh, full-scale invasion on February 24th, uh, more realistic in, in how they described, I believe, you know, uh, European uh, autonomy or sovereignty when it comes to military measures. And they they pushed, while Macron in 2019 said that, you know, in, in my mind, Europe can defend itself, he said in, in, in an interview in, with an economist, uh, in which he also declared NATO brain dead. I think that yes. caught more attention. But as to me, it was interesting that he he made the statement that in his view, Europe could defend itself because a, a lot of countries did not agree with that uh, statement. Uh, and uh, on the contrary, were quite concerned in how to keep US engagement for Europe because we could not defend ourselves. Uh, however, now much more realistic in terms of, no, that's not now. You know, it, it could be in a decade or 15 years if we decide so if we decide so. And I, I think that um, uh, you can also trace from France, uh, and I have experienced this in, in war gaming and so on, that when when the situation is really serious uh, on a global, this, this, this war, in, uh, Russia's war has global implications as well. Then France is, it understands, you know, that, and looks to the U.S. Uh, actually to lead, because then obviously U.S. is the bigger, biggest ally. Um, and uh, someone said that uh, could it have been uh, De Gaulle who called during the the Cuba Missile Crisis um, to the Kennedy administration and said in English, "We will, we will support you." Um, I heard this story, someone told me, and I, you know, for me, that sounds a little bit how the French are actually reasoning when it's a very serious situation. I think it has, the French uh, position has to some extent uh, been a consequence of a bit of a different threat assessment from Russia. Uh, we have seen an emphasis from uh, President Macron uh, trying to have a strategic security dialogue with Russia, uh, and all of this, all of this, um, which was also very much criticized from from uh, Baltic states, Poland, and and others along the eastern flank, who said that you know we we cannot call and and have a dialogue when we don't have a position of strength, um, uh, and we should not uh, th in this way we are uh, we are uh, encouraging more or less Russian uh, behavior <laughs> because they can't see that you know we we don't oppose it. While, while the French or Macron's view was that we need to 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 have this kind of dialogue and try at least at least we need to try, uh, and I think the threat assessment in Paris has changed uh, realistically, and and we have to remember also that um, also in in Mali, which has been very much of a preoccupation for France, uh, Russia has kind of um, pushed uh, France out of Mali through the Wagner Group. Um, and that is uh, that is also a, a big um, uh, something that has uh, affected uh, the French way of thinking on defense uh, uh, during 2022, actually. So we have two two combined forces here. Well, the initially the um, the French went into. I remember that very well from the beginning of the millennium that the French initially were more uh, concerned about the Chinese, actually. Uh, that's why they argued that we would needed to establish uh, CSDP capabilities to to uh, sort of help France to not to appear there alone, so to say, but ha help to 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 uh, appear there um, together with other European countries, not under uh, UN umbrella alone. So now clearly it's more Russia, as you mentioned, uh, Wagner. Uh, <clears throat> 
uh, Anna, I don't think we should uh, uh, prolong the podcast too long. So uh, for my part, I would like to recap again and, and just come back and challenge you if I understood two things um, well from your brief. And then Michael can take up his uh, uh, remaining questions. There are two points. Um, you have a very provoking title. How allied Sweden and Finland can secure Northern Europe? I think many people say, well, we can't. Absolutely not. But you have put forward in reality, as I see it, two arguments why this is an essential perspective. Namely, if we don't try and make an effort to promote security up in Northern Europe, we will not get the help we need <laughs> from the others. So it's a way to catalyze and, and mobilize support to, to defend what in the north-south direction almost will be half of Europe in terms of uh, the borderline to Russia. I think it seems to me to be the fundamental interpretation of the title that this is not that we, we are not going to secure Northern Europe, but we are going to be able to through our efforts to help to mobilize uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the efforts of the others and the support from the Americans, but also from important regional powers. And, and among these regional powers, we now also have to include not only the UK, but also uh, very much Germany and Poland and so on. So that's one, uh, one thing. And the other thing is courtesy to the future NATO, NATO allies. I was told at the very earliest stage working with NATO in multilateral diplomacies, uh, don't divide NATO into different parts. We are one alliance. We have a cohesion and we have solidarity among our members. You have to understand that. That's what I was told, you know, as a non-aligned uh, representative in the old days. I think this is more, more important than ever and that the outreach that you are pr proposing in the in the brief that we even should look south towards the three lakes initiative or three seas, I don't know if it's lakes or seas, um, uh, indicate that one, we have to be interested in the problems of others as well uh, in, in this context. And, and um, there is going to be a very delicate discourse inside NATO, I suppose, about how to establish the different commands which command is Brunsum and, 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 and Norfolk and so on, how is it all going to be balanced up? We don't know the outcome of that. We only know that we as Sweden will have to enter that discussion also listening, not just telling others what we think would be best. So those that's one political and, 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 and actually two political interpretations of your brief. Have I understood you correctly? Yes, I think that's that's an excellent summary. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Is yeah. Time for me to add some final final thoughts from me, or would you uh, like to say more than that? This was an excellent <laughs> summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just um, to develop a little bit on, on what you say on on understand this is this is NATO is all members, um, and you don't exclude. We have a few suggestions there. Um, we call it the three, you know, it relates to the 360 approach, which, which is basically NATO's way of saying that um, threats can look differently from where you are in the alliance, but we need to take everyone seriously. Um, and I, th I think that's a learning process that we need to, to understand. And we suggest, for instance, that Sweden and Finland send and participate with troops from time to time to enhance forward presence, perhaps in Romania. Uh, by the Baltic Sea, uh, by the Black Sea. I hear this uh, quite often as a suggestion. Um, and that would not only to be to show solidarity uh, and so on, but actually I think be open to learn a bit of how 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 do you perceive things down there uh, and bring that back. Uh, and as you said, the Three Seas Initiative, it's an initiative, it, it is an initiative that connects the Adriatic with the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, connects us with a range of countries. Uh, and if you talk about robustness and resilience, it's not only within 
within the north. We also need to see how those lines uh, and flows go from the north to the south, to the east, to the west. Uh, and in that way, I think this uh, we need to expand our views, uh, and that will be to the benefit of us. And now on a on a new basis. On before. a new basis, because the little world in the in the headline that makes all the difference is allied. Yes. How allied Sweden and Finland can secure Northern Europe. And I kept saying for some time uh, since I'm a former envoy to Norway that we have a lot to learn from Norway uh, and how it's what it takes to conduct uh, uh, value-based uh, policies uh, globally while remaining a, a staunch. Uh, a proponent of uh, and a defender of core core task of NATO. So that's an interesting and I think uh, inspiring combination. Now I would just like to add from my from my side uh, two things. I I like your paper a lot because I think I, one learns a lot from me, even the terminology and the, the lingo from from uh, the NATO world, so to speak. And you're very well versed in that, so that's very useful. And also the 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 way you say. Uh, or talk about the the combination of the new uh, U.S. policies as uh, enshrined in those latest documents. I was asking you before about whether they too are becoming obsolete fast in view of developments, but you you have responded to that already. And then you have uh, the fact that this uh, all means that there must be a sort of a medium at the new level. Uh, of, of activity, so to speak, and, and burden sharing also globally in, in the various ways that we said. And there is a lot of drama developing in, in the in the Southeast Asia now with uh, Japan's new steps and with South Korea apparently uh, considering their own nuclear weapons, at least they have said so. And you have North Korea and you have Taiwan and, and what have you. So it's, it, there is a brewing drama there too, which will, as you say, necessarily occupy a lot of U.S., interest in various ways so my my i would leave you from me now with with uh, reminding of that that we we have and you would expect me to say so you have a turkish angle to this uh, both as a hindrance to to some aspects of eu nato cooperation as we know and also as uh, as um if i may say so a spoiler factor in, in terms of not only the you know, the Finnish uh, the Swedish case, but also being sort of uh, acting and uh, approaching elections now from a from a value basis, which is very different from NATO core core statutes. Uh, and you have that problem, and uh, it is discussed in Washington today. But then you have also the the problem of the U.S. and uncertainties pertaining to uh, the twenty four elections and uh, and uh, moods in in the uh, on and uh, among the GOP. Uh, so, I mean, what would your your thoughts to be shared with us be on those two things? I mean, we have the we have a Turkish Turkish Hungarian, if you like, uh, sort of dissenter um, faction within NATO, and you have the questions concerning the the way ahead for the U.S. as a democracy. Uh, and then you have the the indispensability of the transatlantic link. Do you see problems or do you see overcomabilities there? <laughs> well, I I'm you like the phrase. I'm an optimist, <laughs> so <laughs> I I, uh, I mostly see see opportunity. I mean, of course, there, these are challenges. We don't really uh, control them. You were asking in the in the beginning. You know, what kind of proposals can we move on? Uh, if we're not, if we don't become members soon, if Turkey keeps on blocking us, for instance, mm -hmm. um, I think a range of these proposals we can still work on. It will be even stronger, but we can start preparations. And basically, it's up to uh, we are uh, now participating in all of NATO's committees except for the nuclear uh, uh, planning, planning uh, group. Yeah. group. Uh, we are uh, part of the capability development and, and they are, you know, we are going through our defenses and so on. And so, of course, you can take in a lot of it uh, already. Uh, nothing prevents us from working more uh, forward leaning on, on the political cooperation side or uh, we can go as, as long as we want within the EU um, as, as members. 
uh, when it comes to resilience, robustness, and so on. So it's it's to some extent it's a, it's a vision, a think, way of thinking that I am uh, you know encouraging uh, us mm. to apply better. Um, and then I think you we always have to think about in these times. I get a lot of questions also on the U.S. as as you say, you know, where where is the U.S. heading as a democracy, and where will it lead, and so on. Well, we don't know that, of course, but. We sure, we sure can see the alternative, can't we? Uh, if we look at Beijing um, and how how China is acting in the world, um, we we are part of a strong uh, political alliance, the EU. Uh, so we have a, a strong platform there to work on a value base within the EU. Also, we also have our problems with some members. We, Hungary is also a member of the EU, uh, and even if the and, EU, and Poland and Poland uh, exactly so. I mean, sometimes you hear that, uh, why doesn't NATO have an, uh, a clause that can exclude uh, members that become, uh, you know, too autocratic? Well, uh, you know this better than I, but I believe EU has some kind of uh, ways of excluding uh, members, but do you use it? Well, it's very, very difficult. I mean, it's almost a rhetorical question, right? At what point do you exclude another country? Uh, and that is actually why NATO does not have it. it is, it's not that it was not considered. Uh, it was considered. There were several proposals on it. But at that time, now I've become a bit historic, but I think the parallel is interesting. At that time, it was about communism. Would communism be inf infiltrated through uh, European states, uh, perhaps through parliamentary processes? And then you would have, you know, close connections to the adversary, the aggressor. Uh, the Soviet Union through the democratic processes. Now you can see similar uh, things like that. We, you know, you would speculate how close is Turkey to Russia, how close is Hungary to to Putin, and so on. Um, but still, the, the the matter of excluding a country from a political community or institution that uh, that's not that's not an easy process. You have to deal with the politics, uh, and that's what we have to do as well here. I think now it seems with Turkey we get a bit of help from our from the US, uh, perhaps in, in to see if, if you know, uh, if that will fly, there are no guarantees as I see it. Uh, so we will have to live with this, with this, these uncertainties that surround us and, and therefore, but there are a lot of practical steps and measures that we, that we could take to move forward. We don't need to be paralyzed uh, in any way as I see it. My views on this uh, would take too long for this podcast, but I look forward to talking to you about it. Some, but congratulations on a very interesting paper. Yeah. Thank Finally. you so much. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yes, yeah, so and thank you for having me. Thank you.